Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the top political stories of the day. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. I'm Editor-in-Chief Jeff Palais, filling in for our usual host, Victoria Rose. Today, we're joined by Elizabeth Dole, who's the director of the Braver Politics Program with Braver Angels. Their organization takes on political polarization head-on through grassroots outreach, activism, and workshops to help build respect, conversation, and collaboration across the political aisle. Elizabeth spent a handful of years volunteering with Braver Angels before joining their team full-time a little over a year ago. She first got involved in politics, interning on a congressional campaign as a teenager, and has spent the years since consulting for and working on many state and local campaigns. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So we were just talking a little bit about uh, you live in Western Washington State, which I have always wanted to go visit. And I have heard very many great things for. And in particular, I know the hiking is great out there. My family and I love hiking in the East Coast typically. But what are some of your favorite spots to hike out in the West Coast? Mount Rainier and also the Olympic Mountains up on Hurricane Ridge is absolutely gorgeous. Also, if you go out toward the ocean, the trails aren't quite as popular because they're a much longer drive from Seattle. and Along 101, there are some absolutely stunning hikes to be had. The Dungeness Spit is a really pretty hike, and it's fairly easy and also not quite super popular, and it ends at a lighthouse. So that's always a fun one. You just have to be conscious of tides. It does sound gorgeous. Have you been to the rainforest up in Washington? I've always been fascinated. That there's a rainforest in the United States of America. It's up in Washington State. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually, it's about an hour, hour and a half drive from me. So I go out there with some regularity. Actually, it's kind of near both Hurricane Ridge and the Dungeness Spit hike that I just talked about. The Ho Rainforest is what it's called. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it's kind of tucked inside a typical like mountain national forest. And so it's a very interesting feature of Washington state geography and also kind of national geography. Very cool. Well, the theme of our conversation today, I think, is really going to center around something very near and dear to Ballopedia's heart as well, which is creating a product that successfully engages political consumers of all ideologies. One of the reasons why I've, I've loved following Braver Angels' journey over the years is because it really does closely parallel what we do here at Ballopedia. So we, we help connect people to politics and produce neutral material that can be digested and trusted by readers from all sides of the political spectrum. I think that there's a lot of similarity uh, in that experience over at Braver Angels. So I'm curious what you what you think of that and how you all work to stay true to that goal. Yeah, absolutely. So we try really hard to stay true to the goal by being politically balanced. So at our staff and volunteer leadership level, we are equally red and blue. Um, which means that I work on things day in and day out in Braver Angels with people who disagree with me politically. We don't just talk the talk, we walk the walk. Every one of us has a cohort who is the opposite color from us. And we talk all the time. We function together. We are a cohesive unit. We plan out our long-term goals for programming, programs, structure, all of that happens together. And also, we work really hard to build consensus within Braver Angels. We don't do stuff typically just on a 50 plus one majority. We usually do stuff when we can get virtually everyone on board with a plan. And if we haven't reached consensus yet, uh, we'll typically not take that action until we have found a way to reach consensus. 
That's such a fascinating approach to take there. We find that when we work specifically on producing articles, let's say, we want all of our readers, regardless of where they stand in ideology, to read the article and to trust it, which I think we, you know, we find is a is a really challenging and exciting thing to do and to tackle. But there really aren't a lot of organizations out there that do that, especially as the political climate and political landscape has grown kind of more fractured and more divided, where there's more and more political content really targeted toward one side or the other. What are some other tactics or, or experiences? you've had over Braver Angels where you've seen things work differently or things that you like and appreciate about how your organization approaches it? I love that we are always engaging in good faith with each other. My experience with my colleagues at Braver Angels has been second to none any job that I've ever had. We're constantly thinking about whether a particular approach or something that we've written or something that we've published or something we're thinking about writing is appropriately politically balanced. We're thinking about the way that it communicates particular ideas to reds, the way that it communicates particular ideas to blues. We're thinking about the phrasing inherent in that and whether a particular word or a particular phrase sounds more red or blue. And we're constantly running the things that we put out past people who are the opposite color of the writer or through a team that is politically balanced to make sure that there's consensus around this being an acceptable way to say a thing. You know, that's always a work in progress. There are always factions that you can't account for because Republicans and Democrats are a really diverse group. Red and blue in America is an extremely diverse thing. And there are people who are independents too. And so trying to find one set of words that works for everyone is sometimes a challenge, particularly around some of our debates or our common ground workshop pre-reads. But it's always worth the extra effort because that's, as you mentioned, that's how you build trust. And that's how you ensure that people continue to engage and continue to believe in the mission is when they see it in practice and watch it done well. Yeah, it's so true with respect to terminology and how much that can label you. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast before. I'm originally from New Jersey. And so if I were to say to you, well, I'm going down the shore this weekend, you would know if you know New Jersey or are from New Jersey or know anyone from New Jersey, that that means to go to the beach. You're not actually going down. But that's what you say when you're from New Jersey. You say, I'm going down the shore. So the words we use can can label you and identify you. And so being cognizant of that is so interesting and a really fun challenge in the world of political writing and political coverage. You work specifically on the Braver Politics program. So tell us a little more about what that actually is. Braver Politics, to explain it, I back up just a little bit and I start with what Braver Angels does, which is, as I describe it, organize workshops to help people that disagree about politics have healthier conversations with each other about politics. And my program is specifically for elected officials, candidates, and their staff members. So I organize workshops and also political events in a way that is depolarizing and that helps elected officials, candidates, and their staff members communicate more effectively across cross divides with their constituents, and that also helps constituents and uh, average Americans communicate effectively with their elected officials, candidates, and staff members and build those relationships in a depolarizing way. I love and admire what you're doing over there because it's such a, a really great and sort of noble mission to take to get us all respecting and talking neighborly with one another. Do you have any like favorite success stories or favorite examples where you're like, yes, that's where it was working. Here's where a great example where it worked in the way we intended it to. 
Yes. So I have two examples, one of a whole event, one that's an anecdote from an event. Which one do you want first? Let's go with the anecdote. So the anecdote from an event is actually a red blue workshop that I ran a couple of months ago in a small town called Stevenson, Washington. It's very rural community directly across the border from the state of Oregon. And on the state of Oregon side, things are very blue. And on the Washington state side, things are very red. And it's a really interesting dynamic. And the community tends to be fairly polarized in their opinions. And I have a fantastic set of organizers down there who put together a red-blue workshop, which is our signature workshop at Braver Angels, and brought together the most incredible group of citizens. Some of them knew each other, some of them didn't. Uh, They ran the gamut of the political spectrum. And at one point, a great conversation happened in what we call the questions exercise, which is toward the end of the workshop, um, where a question was brought forward, where can we all go to find truth? And someone from the blue side had said, well, you know, I think that this is where government agencies should step in and public funds should be used to really, really strongly protect the independent and the fact-finding nature of these agencies so that when they publish information that it can be relied upon and that we can refer back to government agencies for our source of truth. And one of the other blues who was actually not generally going to be responding, the Reds are supposed to respond to this question, jumped in and said, well, I think that's completely wrong, actually. The government is not going to tell me what is truth. One of the Reds immediately like, ripped her name tag in half. We give participants red name tags and blue name tags. And she ripped her name tag in half and handed the bottom half of her name tag to this woman who was blue and had said that, said, here, you're an honorary red now. And the other two reds started laughing. It was just this really great moment of coming together. The, The blue took the red half of the name tag and stuck it over the bottom half of her name tag. And then the rest of the workshop, she was an honorary red because of this one comment. There's an old Heineken commercial, I think, that kind of spoke to some of this about getting people who disagree to talk together. So what are some of the challenges that you face when trying to encourage this kind of collaboration and dialogue? Challenges include uh, people being skeptical about the willingness of others to engage in good faith. There's real doubt about whether you can have a conversation across divides with someone who staunchly disagrees. There are real struggles to trust people, even to walk into a room where the whole idea is that we're going to set ground rules and have a structured conversation in a healthy way. Uh, The lack of trust really, really really makes it challenging sometimes to bring people into that space. Often they're both concerned about not feeling safe. Often blues are concerned about a lack of emotional safety. Reds are often concerned that they're going to be canceled, um, that they might lose their jobs, that they're going to lose relationships in the community. And it's a struggle often to ensure that people trust you. And that's where red-blue balance really, really, really becomes important 
important because we're able to have Alliance members who are red and blue go into their own communities and invite their friends, invite acquaintances, invite other people within their own tribe and say, hey, um, this is my credibility on the line. They are a trustworthy organization. They will make sure that this is safe for you. They will make sure that this is a good conversation for you. And you can trust that when we say this is a healthy way to have conversation, it's true. I would say that, that another challenge sometimes is the question will be asked, you know, what sort of speech is allowed? And the idea is really that you are engaging in good faith and you are believing the best about other people's intent. And to that end, we engage freely and fully without fear. All sorts of speech is allowed as long as it follows the ground rules of the workshop. And that scares people sometimes, but it's absolutely vital to changing people's attitudes toward each other and erasing that fear and building the original trust. It's so interesting when you talk about people trusting the the system or trusting the process or trusting the ground rules. What do you find in terms of people self-selecting in and whether it's a sort of a representative audience, so to speak. And I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean. With Ballopedia's content, most of the readers to Ballopedia have to search for and find us, which means they're kind of inherently curious. They're inherently looking for an answer to an open question they have. What we sometimes wonder then is there's a percentage of the political readership, a percentage of the political participants who aren't naturally curious, maybe who feel very strongly about their beliefs, and their convictions, and their values. So they're not going to search for information and they're not going to find Ballopedia. And those types might also say, I don't want to go participate in a red-blue workshop. I don't need to. I'm curious what you find. You know, do, do you feel like you get a representative sample? Are you able to make headway and make outreach into that dynamic? Or do you feel like it is kind of constrained to people who are just sort of naturally already looking to engage in those conversations? No, I think often people, more people want to talk than we give credit to. Reds want their views heard in blue areas. Blues want their views heard in red areas. And everyone wants to have a rational conversation for the most part. There are a few people who don't. We're not trying to change everyone. We're trying to change a critical mass of people. We're trying to make the social norm of the country that you engage in these conversations in a nuanced way so that the expectation is that you will be a responsible and thoughtfully engaged citizen in the civic process rather than promoting polarization, rancor, and stereotypes about people who disagree. And some people are going to believe that that is the wrong approach and we're not going to change their minds. But most people, once they see that it's possible, they are really, really excited because they believe that it's necessary and they want that and they desire it. They just thought that it was impossible in today's society. So we're able to really leverage a bunch of different thoughts. One of the things that I use in my region is a drive toward innovation. I live in a really techie area and people want to see growth and want to see innovation. And I just remind them that you know, if you exclude perspectives that you disagree with, you make people afraid to innovate. Unless you're willing to engage other perspectives freely and fully without fear, unless you're willing to say that no one is not worth talking to, you will never hear those really innovative ideas and advance the best policy that exists because they will self-censor out of fear. Most people, blue, red, green, yellow, pick your color team, they just want to put their kids to bed at night and go enjoy their time. 
regardless where you stand on the spectrum. If you use that mindset to politics, then, you, then people are not so dissimilar necessarily all the time. Yeah, this is something that we talk about a lot is, you know, everyone wants better for the next generation. Everyone cares about a quality education for their kids. You know, everyone wants good jobs for people in society. Everyone wants a safe community. The the questions are how do we get there? And if you recognize that we share a lot of the same values and we share a lot of the same concerns, it makes it a lot easier to have healthy policy disagreements. What are some patterns that you find with the participants in the programs? Is, is there anything you've learned in particular about the people who participate? What do you mean by patterns? Patterns with the the kind of individuals who come to the programs or the themes that come up in the programs, regardless of state that they're in, regardless of rural versus suburban. Been doing the program for a long enough time now where you might go, oh, this, we, we see this commonly throughout the locations that we go through. So major theme is always finding more common ground than was expected. People come in very skeptical about the potential of actually agreeing with people who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum. And we do get, as I mentioned, the full spectrum. Go back to the Red Blue workshop I ran very recently. We had the vice chair of the county Democrats, who is a trans woman. And we had Joe Kent, who was the very far-right Republican candidate for Congress in Washington's third congressional district. And so you really had kind of both ends of the red-blue spectrum there coming together. Um, You had blue woman who said, you know, I think during 2020, I was so far blue that I went back around and became red in some sense. And simultaneously, you had red saying, yeah, you know, I think I was so far red that I went back around and became blue on some topic. And so you start to see common themes of that. Uh, You see nuance pulled out in our fishbowl exercises of places where people have concerns about issues within their own party or attitudes within their own party that you don't necessarily always expect and that you wouldn't see brought up in the media because in obviously it's an intent to minimize people's concerns with their own side and kind of enforce a perception of unanimity, even though that unanimity really doesn't exist when you break down to the individual level. So I want to ask another question about your program, which is politics is not always binary. It's not always blue and red. And I suspect it, you kind of alluded to this earlier, that it's been getting even more multifaceted, you might say, than it used to be. How do you tackle that? Do you, you know, how do you encounter situations where maybe someone comes in and says, I don't like that. Why isn't there a team light red? Or why isn't there a team dark blue? Or why isn't there a team green? Like, how do you approach that with the participants that you have in the program? I always just explain that what we're looking for is a lean one way or the other. I am not looking to assign them any sort of stereotype. I'm asking them to self-identify. Do they usually lean one direction or the other direction? And it doesn't have to be red-blue if they don't want to think in that spectrum. If they would prefer to think of it as right-left, I'm happy to hear that from them and sort them accordingly. Um, A label is only as useful as you make it. And so for us, it's a functional way of saying, hey, these are people that you would typically think of as on this side. These are people who typically identify on this side. And look at 
all of the nuance that exists within those two perspectives. You know, you think there's a party line because you imagine that everyone falls within, you know, a dark red or a dark blue. But the reality is that there is no dark red, light red, light blue, dark blue. There is just a spectrum and everyone falls somewhere on that spectrum. And some people cross the spectrum in a variety of ways and they still consider themselves often leaning on one side or the other side. And when you hear someone say, oh, well, I lean red, but I also think these things that are blue or vice versa, you know, I lean blue, but I also have these tendencies that are red. You really get to understand that in a personal way. So Braver Angels is a pretty volunteer led organization. How do your volunteers participate in the program? Yeah, we have alliances, which are our volunteer groups spread across the country. I think that we have 94 alliances spread across uh, almost every state at this point. So we have a huge number of volunteers, around 12,000 last time I checked. And we organize events a little bit of everywhere. So people can get involved by going to our website and looking up their local alliance and contacting um, what we call the state coordinator or the co-chair of their local alliance. Um, or they can get involved just by attending and checking out a national level Zoom events. Often alliances are going back to in-person events, but the great thing about the post-COVID era is that we are running events in person, we are running events by Zoom, and we are running hybrid events. Um, I actually just ran a town hall last week in Utah that was hybrid uh, with an owl. Are you familiar with that piece of technology? I'm familiar with owls from Harry Potter. Is this a different kind of an owl? <laughs> I was just reading in chapter six, OWLs, or is a different owl, I take it? There's a different owl. It's this cylindrical camera, basically, and microphone that sits on a table and uh, the cameras in it look like eyes. The lenses light up when it's turned on and it will move around to focus on the person that it hears talking. And one of the other cameras will show the entire room in a split zoom screen. And so you can have one group of people in person and one group of people on Zoom. And the people on Zoom through the OWL are able to see and hear both specific individuals talking through the zoomed in lens of the OWL and see the whole group of people present in the room and hear them through the split screen sharing that. Technology is amazing. <laughs> what it can do. That's a uh, a very interesting approach to take your with your volunteers. Twelve thousand volunteers. That's amazing. And you have a very big event coming up, I think, in July as well. Do you want to tell our listeners about that in Gettysburg? Yes. So in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, July 5th through the 8th. So in about a month, we will be gathering a huge number of people. I think we're around 800 registrants right now for our annual convention. Um, the idea is that we will be launching our social movement, which is, as I mentioned earlier, our effort to spark change nationwide and really create a critical mass of social influence for people to engage in a more nuanced and respectful way, to engage a variety of perspectives, and to renew their commitment to civic engagement and civil 
civic engagement with each other. To that end, this is what all of our work for rebuilding community trust, rebuilding individual trust, rebuilding trust in institutions, it's all a component of that. Uh, We recognize that we can't do this on our own as a single organization. No one organization can. Uh, So we are bringing together media organizations. We're bringing together partisan organizations who have committed to the mission of depolarization. And we're bringing together individuals from all over the country who disagree stridently with each other to work toward the same goal and to coalesce around efforts to achieve the same goal, which is healthy conflict, finding common ground where we can, disagreeing respectfully where you can't, and a renewed commitment to caring for each other, Um, civic renewal of mutual understanding and respect across divides of all kinds. That sounds like an amazing event. I'm really excited. I've never been to Pennsylvania before, so it will be another state to check off my list. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us again. And for our listeners, you can check out Braver Angels' work and learn more about some of what we chatted about by checking out the links in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe to On the Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jeff Palais. Thanks for listening. 